0: My name is Bob Guterma, and I'm the CEO here at The China Project, the parent company of The Seneca Podcast. Our listeners, you folks, are an extremely engaged community of government and business decision makers, China specialists, and others who are deeply and genuinely interested in China as a country, a people, and as a theme or force in global business and geopolitics. The China Project has a mission to help the world understand China better using fact-based reporting, contextual analysis, and expert-level insight. We pursue our mission as a for-profit, subscriber-supported company because we believe that as a self-sustaining company, we will be able to best ensure our independence from special interests for the long-term future. We have a pathway to profitability over the next two years that will allow us to become fully self-sustaining, and we are raising our next and possibly final round of outside investment en route to that outcome. We're doing so through an SEC-registered REG-CF campaign, which stands for Regulation Crowdfunding, meaning that we can accept investment from people like you, our readers and listeners, with a minimum investment of only $500. If you believe that China is important enough of a topic to warrant a dedicated, focused platform to tell its story in the coming decades, and if you believe that we are that platform and you want to invest in our future go to www.thechinaproject.com and click on the fundraising banner you'll see at the very top of the page. If you have any questions or want to speak more before investing, email me directly at bob at Thanks so much for your support. And now on to the show.
2: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. This year marks the 10th anniversary of China's Belt and Road Initiative, and I'll be doing a number of interviews in the coming months to assess its successes and failures across the last decade, as well as the future of the initiative. To kick things off, I'm very pleased to welcome Raffaello Pantucci, who is a senior fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. He is the co-author of a book published last year called Sinistan. China's Inadvertent Empire, which he wrote with the late Alexandros Peterson. The book was researched both before and after the formal announcement in 2013 of the Belt and Road Initiative. And for that reason, it offers a rare window into the evolution of China's strategy, if indeed it can be said to have one, in Central Asia. Rafael, welcome to Seneca and thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Well, Thank you so much for the kind invitation to, uh, to come and talk to you. I have listened to the podcast, and it's great to finally come onto it. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. I think that our conversation has to start with the personal
2: tragedy uh, that's at the heart of the book, Sinistan. Could you talk about how you set out writing it uh, with your co-author, Alexandros Peterson, and about his murder in Kabul in 2014 in a terror attack in a restaurant uh, when Alex was still,
1: I think he was only 29 when that happened, right? He was incredibly young. I mean, he was an I- incredibly brilliant uh, young man who was really cut down in his prime. And, you know, if you do a Google of his name, you sadly find a lot of obituaries that were written at the time by the sort of vast range of people who he'd come across in Washington, both friends and professional acquaintances, all of whom, you know, were sort of expecting this young man to rise up to be a really sort of brilliant and top scholar uh, in international relations. Um, I knew Alex for years before that. In fact, it was very funny because I, I actually didn't know how old he was for a very long time <laughs> because he was very coy about uh, his age, recognizing he was quite young and the work he was doing was sort of pushing him ahead in, in, a, in a way and, you know, in a field where seniority is often, you know, smiled upon. He, he found it, he sort of found this is the best way to do it. But Alex was a, a really good friend and the two of us, um, I can't actually remember exactly where we first met, but we worked, we kind of overlapped in Washington, D.C. when uh, we were both doing kind of intern stuff there in the early 2000s. Um, and then we both were living in London, where he was doing a PhD at the London School of Economics, and I was working at a think tank there. And, you know, we'd sort of hang out and, and chat. And then I moved out to China, and I went to work at the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences, Shanghai Shokoyuan where i was based for about four years and while i was there the two of us had talked a lot about doing a big project looking at china in central asia really interested in central asia we both love traveling around uh, the region and you know so we decided to have a go and bid for a big project to try to basically go travel around the region to try to understand what was happening you know in terms of china's relations there because it was something we could see seem to be starting to emerge the narrative that you really found around Central Asia tended to be a very Russian-dominated one. Right. And the two of us actually found, as we did reading and research around it, that actually the part that was coming up that no one seemed to be staring at was China. And so we thought, well, you know, let's do a project on this. And so we bid. We luckily won the money. And then we, you know, spent basically better part of a year, year and a half, two years, really. Me from my base in China, his from his base in Europe. And then later um, out in the region, he got a job working at the American mm-hmm. University in Bishkek um you know travelling around central asia travelling around xinjiang going to russia um going to uh, all, all these uh, neighboring countries to basically try to understand what was happening with china in the region and you know having done all this research having talked to lots of people having gathered lots of information we then started you know to commit pen to paper and to publish what was the report for a project that we'd had funded but ultimately we thought we turn it into a book and it was at that point when we're kind of in the process of writing the book, we had, I think, about 50 or 60-ish, 50,000 words down on paper. So it's enough to start taking around to publishers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, sadly, Alex had this wonderful opportunity to go work at the American University in, in Kabul. And he was sadly um, in uh, the Taverna restaurant, um, a Lebanese restaurant in uh, in Kabul, with a colleague actually in the American University. And the two of them were sadly killed, murdered in this terrorist attack, which you know, in terms of attacks within a war-torn country was sadly not surprising. But the attack itself did mark a bit of a shift that we saw in the insurgency, unfortunately. After that, I was in this awkward, well, awkward and this difficult situation where a dear friend had died in this horrible way. And I had this project that we'd been working on, which was, you know, nearing some sort of maturity, but wasn't quite there. And then it was Frankly, I found it a bit difficult to turn to for a while, but eventually I decided, you know, I really should do this. And in the intervening period, I continued to work on the subject because it was one that I I found really interesting and I wanted to keep working on. And so when eventually, you know, I finally got my act together, frankly, and, you know, life, of course, got in the way in between as well with, you know, family, marriage, children, house, all that. I actually finally finished writing the manuscript, going back to what we had and then adding new material that I've been gathering as I'm going along. Uh, you know, it only felt appropriate that the final book should come out with his name as well, because it was an idea that we really conceived together. And, you know, a lot of it, a lot of the stories and adventures were ones that I remember doing with him. And even when I went back to do them again, I was sort of trying to repeat experiences that I had with him, because it was such a, you know, invigorating experience to travel uh, with a dear friend like that.
2: Yeah, it must have been difficult. And then you made the decision to continue to use the pronoun we even for the parts of the book that are pretty clearly reported posthumously.
1: Yes, I mean that was really for cleanliness, <laughs> in the sense that you know I thought the reader would go crazy if every meeting was you know being redefined as who was present. Right. In some cases it was me alone. In other cases I travelled with other colleagues because I was doing different projects. So you know the book becomes kind of an amalgam, and there are a couple of colleagues and one particular colleague who I actually mentioned in the in the in the preface, who you know will probably recognise some of the encounters because you know she was there. <laughs> but um, but you know I, <laughs> pled. <laughs> She I I've written a lot of other projects and stuff with them, so I, I didn't feel too guilty about it. But it just felt cleaner, frankly, to just go ahead and do it like that rather than sit down and each and every time say exactly who was present.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and just to be clear, you, you spell all this out really clearly in the preface. So I mean I don't think there's anything at all problematic about it. Uh and uh it's it's a really interesting book. Um, so Xinjiang is of course the focus of the first section of the book and, and really threads through the whole thing. And you lay out how central Xinjiang is to Beijing's policy and its ambitions for Central Asia. You basically argue that that Chinese policy in Xinjiang is ultimately all about Central Asia and that Chinese policy towards Central Asia is ultimately about Xinjiang. I think if I if I put your, your central case correctly. Can you unpack this a bit and, and talk about what led you to this
1: conclusion? So our experience from traveling around on the ground and from talking to people and from looking at how the policies have played out is that Xinjiang is really crucial. It's the key part. And if you go back and look at kind of the beginning of China's relations with contemporary Central Asia, which is the end of the Cold War, you know, you have the first thing that happens is they create this Shanghai Five grouping, which is basically a kind of border delineation structure. China found itself at the end of the Soviet Union a situation of suddenly sharing a border with four new countries. You know, it used to be the Soviet Union, and then suddenly it becomes the Russian Federation, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and Tajikistan. And so those borders were already very remote. They were already very ill-defined. These are the nether regions of, you know, the most distant parts from Moscow and Beijing of the Soviet and Chinese empires. You know, and so the borders were a bit fluid and suddenly you had these new countries and everyone wanted to make sure, Well, hang on, where actually is the line and so on and so forth. And so that's the Shanghai Five. And that really is the first delineation. Of course, from a Chinese perspective, that's really about defining Xinjiang's borders with Central Asia, right? Right. And so that's kind of the first component of it. And so that's where Xinjiang is, is right next door and it's part of it. The other thing that's worth remembering within that context is that we talk about Xinjiang and we tend to talk about it very much in a case of, you know, Han versus Uyghur. But actually, of course, there's huge Central Asian communities or ethnic Central Asian communities living there as well. There's like around a million ethnic Kazakhs, you know, within China's borders. There are large Kyrgyz and Tajik communities if you go up near the sort of Kyrgyz and Tajik borders. You know, if you go up there, you can find these villages which, you know, you walk through them and, you know, it feels like you're in a completely different land. Because the people look entirely different from, you know, Han Chinese. And yes, the road signs are in in, in Chinese characters and, you know, have sort of local... uh, you know, script underneath, but you know, it's it feels like a completely different land and and really it is closer very much in culture and ethnicity um, and language to the countries it's next to than China. So China in many ways has a lot of Central Asia within it, as much as you know it having this kind of borderline. So Xinjiang is really tied into this region. And of course you've got huge Uyghur diasporas that exist in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. So there's a very deep intermingling that goes into this region. And, you know, after the Shanghai Five creation, the next big kind of moment, I would say, in kind of trans relations, the region comes in 94, when uh, then Premier Li Peng does a big tour of the region. He goes to, you know, four of the Central Asian capitals. He didn't go to Dushanbe because it was suffering a horrible civil war at the time. Right. And it's interesting because at each stop, there's two things that he talks about. He talks about Silk Roads, you know, new connectivity routes that they want to build enhancing prosperity. and There's a huge delegation of businessmen that came with him. And he talks about worrying about dissidents and how he wants the central Asians to work with China to try to stop dissidents from causing trouble there, recognizing that this is a language that the locals will understand because they're just as worried about dissidents as well. You know, within Central Asia, in the same way that you have this kind of, you know, this bleed across the border of communities into China and into Central Asia, you have across Central Asian borders as well. You know, if you go to some of the big Uzbek cities that people know, like Bukhara or Samarkand, these are majority ethnic Tajik cities, really, you know. So sure. there is a huge intermingling around there. And so they're all very worried about separatists and dissidents and everything. But the key thing is that those were the two driving issues that, you know, Li Peng was talking about. And you look at his speeches at every stop, those are the ones he come up. And of course, that's fascinating because those are pretty much the same things that China's still talking about today. And both of those, in many ways, are very closely linked to Xinjiang. That's right. Because the dissidents that China's worried about are the ones that might cause trouble in Xinjiang. And then the Silk Roots is really about trying to, you know, improve prosperity in Xinjiang because they think that is the kind of the long-term answer to basically dealing with these problems of instability in the region.
2: Yeah, great. And we'll come back to, I mean, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, this central theme of yours uh, because the the way that the reporting shook out. It's it, it's not an explicitly stated theme. It's one that you seem to have deduced rather than having sort of, you know, written it down from some public hmm. pronouncement, but we'll, we'll get back to that. Well, you know, I think it's important that we, we've surfaced this right away. You know, we're all aware that Beijing beginning at least as early as 2017, probably earlier erected or began erecting a very large system of so-called re-education centers, which are involuntary, they're highly coercive, they're extra legal. Uh, These are commonly referred to as camps on a, a massive scale. And these have been the focus of a lot of criticism, at least in the West. The US is among a number of countries that have labeled the atrocity a genocide. So one would think that the camps would have a huge impact on Beijing's relations with Central Asia, if not with the governments of Central Asian countries themselves, then at least certainly with perceptions of among the, the people, ethnic Kazakhs and Kyrgyz are among, as we all know, the people who were or perhaps still are in the camps or elsewhere in the Chinese carceral system. Uh, and as Turkic peoples, the, the Uyghurs, would, you would think with their very well-known plight, would garner you know, quite a bit of sympathy from some of their, their neighboring countries. But can you talk about uh, what the impact has been both at a state-to-state level and at sort of the popular level of the news of the camps i mean this is now five years old
1: yeah i mean look it's a really difficult question frankly speaking because you know we we started looking at this topic as you pointed out earlier you know long before the Belt and road as well as you know these camps and you know one thing that always struck me you know but even before you know frankly the the if you go to a room you can see that you know and you go to Kashgar and you go around Xinjiang, you can see that it was difficult <laughs> for, you know, Uyghurs living in, in Xinjiang even then. It right. was, this is not, you know, the, the camps is sort of the most extreme expression of this issue that we're seeing. But it's an issue that you could see before already. I remember one of the most notable things people ask me, I've been fortunate enough to go back and forth to Xinjiang since I think it was 2010 or 2011 when I first went. And basically, I went every year until about 2017. And the most notable thing from my perspective was how you saw visibly the security titan you know, and the sort of security visibility of it, you know, armed guards on the streets and, you know, APCs, armed personnel carriers on street corners, big cages with guys sitting inside them with guns outside mosques, facial recognition into shops and everything. And, you know, when I first went, it was pretty loose, frankly, you know, you'd sort of see the airport-style security everywhere, but no one was checking. The second time I went, they were checking a little bit more. And then also when you were flying in there from around China, you know, what was fascinating about that was that the security intensity would start further and further back. So the last time I went, I was essentially, you know, searched and my bag emptied out when I left on the plane in Shanghai, <laughs> wow. you know, even before I'd gotten into the plane to go out to Rimchi. And then, of course, in Rimchi, we had the same thing. So it was, you know, it's a really intense kind of level. So that was the most palpable thing you see. So my point being that this is not a new narrative in some ways. And what we always found, so, so we were asking about, you know, well, what do you think about Uyghurs? How do you think about them, even from our first sort of visits there? And the strong impression we got, frankly, at a public level as well it's not great. I don't want to live there, but, you know, I don't. So that's that, you know. Um, And at a government level, there was very much a sense of, well, you know, Hmm. the Chinese are the rulers of this domain and those people live within it. And so they treat their people how they want to treat their people. And that is kind of the end of it. And there was very much a sense of, we don't criticize, we leave it well alone because that's what they do. And, you know, one could make a case that there's a question of, you know, you don't want to throw stones in glass houses. Uh, Not all of these countries have spotless records in, in regards sort of, Uh, political prisoners and and human rights questions at home so you know there's a level of being a bit sensitive about that (laughs) and not wanting to criticize because then the Chinese won't criticize them and that's that's one side of it um but then you know it's it's at a public level you know it did seem to shift a little bit and we certainly heard a lot more criticism a lot more anger as we went along but it was always fairly limited to be honest with you you know I really didn't find that much of it recently Hmm. in some recent work I've been in I've noticed a lot of online chatter Um, mostly in Uzbekistan about this. But in other places, I really didn't find much of it. And, you know, if you go back and look at history, these communities were warring with each other for the longest time. And there is a strong sense of kind of ethnic nationalism in each of these countries in different kinds of ways. And they each see themselves as better than the other group. And there is a kind of level of racism that you can sometimes even see between them. And unfortunately, I think the Uyghurs fall afoul of that as well. The Kazakhs are an interesting case study of a country that has tried to do something about this. And from my understanding, they have had managed to get some movement on some of the Kazakhs who've gotten caught up in this system. You know, the government lobbies for them, and there is some reporting that some of them have been freed or their conditions have been made better. So the Kazakhs do seem to be leaning into this. The Kyrgyz, as far as I can tell, do occasionally talk about it, but I think they've got no cards to play, frankly, and the Chinese will just kind of do what they want. And the Tajiks, actually, I'm not sure it's a problem that they necessarily encounter that much. So it's one of these horrible situations where I think that, we look at this world and we say, oh, well, they're all Turkic people, so they must you know, feel some sort of it. But unfortunately, they don't necessarily feel that kind of solidarity in the way that we might think. And so you see some bubbling underneath level of concern. But at the end of the day, they say, well, it's not happening here. It's over there. That's not my issue. Uh, so,
2: Raffaello, you'll own that it's sort of an odd book, kind of hard to categorize. It's not academic, strictly speaking. It's certainly not a business book. But it's also definitely a lot more than a travelogue. I mean, it's based on a lot of your firsthand observations and anecdotes about your travels uh, with Alex through, throughout the whole region, talking to, to people, you know, Chinese people, Chinese think tankers, and, and officials, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Uyghurs, Kyrgyz, Turkmen from all walks of life about China's presence in Central Asia. And as such, it it makes for really great reading. Uh, There's just a a ton of really, really fun anecdotes. But it was also hard for me, at least, to get a sense of what one should conclude, Mm -hmm. except that China's results have been decidedly mixed. Uh, Can you talk about your approach and the value uh, that you saw in recounting not the content of the interviews themselves, but also the context, the setting, the color uh, in which these interviews and conversations were taking place. I
1: mean, I, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that, frankly, and describe it in that way, because that was exactly what I was trying, what we initially were going for, and I, I ended up uh, completing, and I'm glad it, it comes across like that.
2: Oh, it does, absolutely, yeah.
1: I recognize it can maybe seem a bit impressionistic, but it was, it was because our sense of this was there was no driving strategic plan, and it was really a kind of piecemeal thing that we saw happening in all sorts of different ways And on the one hand, there were some parts which are very clearly state-driven, state-directed, state-owned in terms of enterprises, banks lending money to do specific projects, Chinese companies coming in to deliver them, Chinese workers coming to do that. But then there was another side of it, which was really interesting, was, you know, these random Chinese traders we would come across who would, you know, take a curiosity to these white guys who could speak a bit of Mandarin and, you know, were sort of incurious curious about their lives, you know. And they feed into that bigger story as well, you know? And it's, it, was, it was our sense of actually, this is a much bigger kind of picture and a much bigger canvas. And also even within the five countries, it's a very, very different story, you know? And so in a way, the idea of telling it in this kind of mix of travelogue and analysis and, um, and research and, you know, empirical data from World Bank or wherever was basically to try to reflect that, that kind of mixed picture we were sort of finding and seeing on the ground. And in some ways, I think it it reflects also the bigger story, which goes back to the reason that we started looking at this first. So our sense was China's influence was growing. And so we wanted to try to understand that more. And then since we started doing the research, it's only grown further, but it hasn't grown in a sort of clean way. It's grown in lots of little ways. And so if you stand back and look at it now and say, okay, how what is China's relation to Central Asia, there's a reason Xi Jinping made this the first region to go to after he decided to start traveling from COVID. Because it's a region they feel very comfortable. It's a region right. that they feel they've got a very strong, powerful role and very strong relationships with. But yet it's still a region where Russia is very influential as well. And so there's a whole sort of underlying thing to that. But, you know, you go back 20 years. Well, you go back to when Li Pung first visited he was really going there introducing himself and his country in some ways to these countries. So it's just a real transformation that's happened, but it hasn't happened in a sort of clean overnight way. It's been this gradual piecemeal bit by bit by bit to this point where China is now really, I would argue, probably the most consequential power in the region.
2: So both in the blend of sort of, you know, large state owned and state directed efforts and this chaos of small traders and individuals—it reminds me an awful lot about China's presence in in Africa, and I, I think that we can look at the two in in much the same way. I mean, many of the same kind of approaches, some of the same focus, you know, like on the extractive industry, uh, many of the same tensions, that same kind of bifurcation between attitudes among leaders who who generally welcome the investments and and the trade, and, and a populace that. Is often quite suspicious. Do you, do you think there's some parallel there?
1: So it's a, it's an interesting comparison, and um, it's one I've thought about a lot. And to be honest with you, I think there's a critical difference which we can't escape, which goes back to your first question, which is Xinjiang mm-hmm. and the fact that this is a region that China's neighbor to, right? You know, and this is a region that, in in a large part, the big state driven push, and also actually a lot of the smaller economic. Opportunity you see does flow from the bigger push that you've seen within China to try to make Xinjiang a more prosperous place. And so that's at the core of kind of China's interest. Now, that means that this is tied to a core domestic Chinese security concern, unlike Africa. You know, Africa is far away. If a project goes wrong in Africa, you shut up shop, you go back home, you say, We're not going to do that again, and move on to the next one. If you do that in Central Asia, you're doing that in a region that you're right next door to. And if that leads to massive instability in that country, if that leads to chaos and trouble, well, you know, that's chaos and trouble that could potentially overspill into your borders and have direct domestic concern in a place where it's incredibly sensitive to China. That's right. You know, it was sensitive even before it became the focus of international sanctions. So, you know, I think that's that's where the difference in some way lies from my perspective. In Africa, you know, a project in Zambia goes wrong. Oops, let's, you know, <laughs> cut that one off, go to another one, not do that again doesn't matter in the same way. Whereas in Xinjiang, in Central Asia, it does matter because it could have this kind of direct knock-on effect back home.
2: So China has had something of an obsession, as you know, with this concept Mm. of soft power, uh, an obsession that's, you know, all out of proportion with its actual ability to project it, at least in in many parts of the world. Um, What is it trying in Central Asia and how successful has it been? I I know Mm. it's been very uneven. And again, I want to come back to, to this question of how, you know, different countries uh, you know there's 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 quite different approaches and different outcomes but uh, g- generally speaking maybe how would you characterize China's soft power approach across the region
1: I mean in many ways you know you could say it's it's fairly crude by which I mean it's done in a way that they think is the way that you see them doing everywhere else which is essentially you know building Confucius Institutes offering scholarships for young people from the region to come to China and study but they offer a lot of other sort of scholarships there's all sorts of programs that they've developed with local governments to try to get sort of officials to come and work in China, security officials, you know, there was there's all sorts of programs that they're running with sort of border and interior ministry forces through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, also separately to try to bring people back. And there's this kind of soft power component to that as well. And all of this is those elements Mm -hmm. which you can see them kind of doing in other contexts as well. And then, you know, beyond that they, you know, their ambassadors write op eds in the local newspapers, you know, to try to Tell the local Chinese line. The embassies are kind of present there and do cultural events and God knows what. So, by crude, I mean that, you know, this is the basic stuff that they think will kind of make and shape the, the local environment. The question is, how does this all land? And this is one which is uh, more complicated because our impression was never that it landed hugely well. Right. And I think a big part, you know, I remember China on a recent visit to Central Asia uh, late last year. There's a Chinese chap who I met years ago in in Tajikistan, and I managed to touch with him when I was in Uzbekistan, and we we caught up each other there. And he's moved to Uzbekistan now, and he said, it's much better here since China's just kind of arrived. They don't hate us as much. He says, in Tajikistan now, they really don't like us. It's really miserable there. It's not fun. You know, in Kyrgyzstan, you hear all sorts of stories about fights happening in the streets, between workers, the Chinese embassy complaining, and there's all sorts of sort of spats at that level. So the soft power isn't landing very well there, is the point. And in Kazakhstan as well, you hear these stories similarly, yeah. less kind of violent in some ways. In Kyrgyzstan, because in Kazakhstan there is a kind of state apparatus that's able to maintain some level of control, which in Kyrgyzstan is a bit more fluid, let's say. But it's it's not really landing well. And, the, and to look at the other one, which is interesting, and there's a whole chapter about it in the book, which is Confucius Institutes. Where you know we were fortunate to visit a lot of the Confucian Institutes. In fact, since we went, more have been built. But at the time that we wrote it, you know, when I first finished, handed the manuscript, I think I'd visited all of them actually. <laughs> but since then, there's more that have appeared. But you know, in each one we visited, we'd find you know these very, you know, diligent young students who are on you know, the best example comparison. I always thought was like a kind of Peace Corps experience. You know, these kind of you know American students of a certain mm-hmm, age who decide mm-hmm. to go do an experience in a foreign country and some sort of state thing, and they're trying to mm-hmm. teach the locals Mandarin and. You know, and then you had the old professors who were sent there from the university that Confucius Institute was paired with who were just there. And these are the guys who were kind of at the front line of this soft power push. And some of them were like, oh, these people are so lazy and it doesn't work. Other of them were like, I love this place. And they were trying to learn the local language. So it was a real mix in that regard as well. Um, but then the other, the other side to that is, of course, the students. And the students was interesting because we struggled often to find many students who were like learning it, learning Chinese because they wanted to read Sun Tzu in the original language or, you know watch chinese films or something but we did find a lot who were doing it because either their parents had told them to or because they thought well there's a job probably at the end of this so it's a very sort of commercial appeal this is not an adoration this isn't learning america because you want to go to hollywood and see new york or something this is learning english because you know not because you want to absorb the culture because you just think there's an economic opportunity at the end of it so it's a very transactional kind of relationship and that i think kind of undermines. And actually recent a more recent project I've been working on with some Kyrgyz researchers is looking at the experience of Kyrgyz who have learned Mandarin uh, for this reason. And actually a lot of them now are complaining that they're not finding the jobs they thought they would. And so actually that that worm is turning a little bit as well, which is I think an interesting new twist on the story, which I think will be one to watch going forwards. But in essence, what China is doing is kind of the very traditional approach that it tries, which is these very sort of Crude is maybe a cruel, an unfair word to use, but I think it's just these sort of blunt tools. We'll offer scholarships. We'll try to bring people back to us. We'll give them language courses, and that that will kind of make them all be more friendly towards us. It doesn't however, necessarily always win hearts and minds. So one
2: thing that I found really valuable in the book, and possibly because it wasn't so rigorously empirical or anything, it was more impressionistic, was the, the sense of the attitudes of various Central Asian peoples toward the Chinese or toward the Chinese state. Uh, but also, you know, impressions of of what your Chinese interlocutors mm-hmm. like. There was this Mr. Zhang, uh, yeah. who was in Bishkek, I believe, and and their attitudes toward <laughs> Central Asian people. So there's there's obviously a lot of prejudice that goes in both directions. Can you talk a bit about the prevailing prejudices that different parties have toward one another?
1: Sure, I mean, of course, you know, I preface this with a caveat, that of course, not everyone necessarily <laughs> thinks the same, but to broadly speak about you know these communities, you' you're entirely right. I mean, I think uh, on the Chinese side, that particular professor professor Zhang uh was you know he was uh I mean he was quite blunt, frankly, in his views he found central, he was incredibly lazy, and you know he'd latched onto one particular student who was a very bright and lovely young man who was ethnic Han but brought up in 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 Kyrgyzstan. He was very dismissive and found them you know very lazy and frankly. A lot of other Chinese I found who were there often had this same kind of impression. They found the central Asians, you know, generally quite lackadaisical. You know, they were very difficult to work. And they said, this is why Chinese companies, when we talk to contractors and Chinese firms that were trying to do projects there, one of the questions that would always come up would be like, well, why are you bring in Chinese workers? And they say, well, you know, they work really hard and they will live in poor conditions they just want the paycheck, get the project done and then go back home, right? Whereas they're like, if I hire locals, it's going to cost me, you know, it's going to take forever, they won't do it, they'll complain, they will, you know, want to go pray, they'll, you know, want to eat certain things, it's just a nightmare. So, and of course, that plays into a funny way into the sort of relationship with the governments as well, actually, because often you'll find all these countries have rules around local hire, local hires, you have to hire X amount of locals to deliver a project. But you know, sometimes the Chinese companies seem to get around these. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the anecdotes I heard was, you know, that, well, you know, they would go to the government and say, well, look, you want this project in six months, right? And the government would say, yes. And they say, well, if you want it in six months, we need to bring in, you know, this many Chinese guys to do it. And they say, oh, well, you know, that's not going to fit the local quotient And they say, well, okay, then it'll take us a year. And so, you know, at which point the government's like, well, in six months I have an election, <laughs> which I want to have something to present at. So, you know, please proceed quickly. You know what I mean? So they would just kind of get a pass. And, you know, so the impression was the locals are kind of lazy and so on. In terms of the other way, there was... Yeah, I mean, it was the most basic kind of Sinophobic narratives you could imagine, to be honest with you, you know, this kind of idea of yellow peril, right. you know, this wave of I'm using horrible language here, and I apologize, you know, sort of ants coming over the border and taking us over, and we've got the huge empty countries, and they just want to swallow us up, you know, there's a huge phobia in some ways at, at that very basic level. I remember one of our early trips to Tajikistan, one of the when actually you couldn't find many Chinese, we really struggled, in fact, it was funny, and we couldn't find anyone who's really working with China, and to go now it's a complete shift to it's an interesting shift to have watched over the past few years. But, um, you know, one of the stories that someone said, said oh, you know, the Chinese company came to build, I can't remember right now if it was a road or a tunnel, and all of the animals disappeared right down to the snakes because, you know, those people eat everything. Really? You know, so it, it's the, those kinds <laughs> of narratives which, you know, unfortunately uh, do persist. And And to be honest, those were pretty universal. What I did notice was that the further you got from China's border – the softer those narratives became. So by the time you get to Turkmenistan, for example, there's just kind of almost no engagement or conception or caring, frankly, about China. Even in Uzbekistan, the first few times you visited, there was a sense of, oh, that place is far away. It doesn't really matter. It's whatever. But when you get to the border countries, you find a lot of these kinds of very basic kind of racist narratives really coursing through the kind of public discourse. And then, of course, you know, if you're dealing with someone who is ethnically a Uyghur or, or Dungum, which is a kind of, you know, Chinese community that lives in in, in the region, you know, you got a different impression from them as well. Usually quite a negative one, to be honest.
2: So Beijing is not unaware of these attitudes and, and the sort of backlash against its presence there. Are, are they, are they're not, I, I assume not oblivious to it anyway. Uh, is Beijing trying to do anything about this image problem or, or is it just fully aware and simply willing to accept that cost?
1: I mean, I know that there have been, they have they have discussions and the problem is that sometimes these issues boil up to impact projects in a, in a negative way. So right. the two examples that kind of immediately spring to mind is in Kazakhstan, there's been a big effort over a few years for big Chinese agribusiness to go there. And part of that was basically to change the local laws so that foreigners could essentially rent land or potentially own land for long periods of time, and this caused a huge runction domestically. Uh, large protests showing up in the streets saying, "Oh, you're giving away our land!" You know, you're gonna. And of course, these are relatively young countries. You know, they're 30 years young. Um, so you know, the idea of nationhood and territory is really important to them. It's still forging their kind of national uh, story in many ways. And so within that context, you know, the sure. idea that your government's signing laws to give away your territory to this giant beast next door is, you know, one they don't like. So that, you know, led to those projects essentially being shelved. you know, or having to be hidden away in uh, in Bishkek. There was a big project a couple of years ago, at a big transit logistics point that was going to build, which had to get shelled because the local protest was so strong that the, the company actually just decided this just isn't worth the grief and walked away from it. Wow in tajikistan the interesting project was years and years ago there was a big agribusiness which is going to do a project in the south of the country now we heard from you know people who work in the industry that the project was the territory was fallow essentially it was not being used by anybody and you couldn't do anything with it and the chinese had some actually some interesting desalination equipment that they could bring and that would you know deal with the problems and actually become useful arable land again and so the chinese company came and did that but This project, of course, was going to touch all these rails, you know, land, China. So, you know, in the end, you saw the local government completely tried to squash any information and squashed a few protests that took place. Um, And the Chinese actually censored any discussion around it as well to try to stop any sort of stories filtering out. So. I mean, I think Beijing's very aware of this and they bring it up, it, it, the sort of official engagements. I remember the Kazakh, some calling them Kazakh MFA officials, and we raised this point to them. They said, yep, it is a problem. We're aware of this problem. And when we try to say, well, what do you do about it? And they say, well, yeah, we have to manage it. <laughs> you know, So I, I think everyone, they're, they're all very aware of it, but they don't really, I think, have an answer. And from a Chinese perspective, I never had a sense that they were like, well, we're just going to convert these people. I have heard that increasingly over time. They have become much more pressuring on local authorities. And, you know, I know in in, in Kyrgyzstan in particular, I've heard heard a number of stories of things happening to the local Chinese community, the Chinese embassy getting involved, and essentially the Chinese embassy publicly rebuking the local authorities, you know, which is a pretty scandalous situation, you know, an embassy is there as a guest, (laughs) you know, of the host country. Um, And, you know, the stories I heard was that, you know, the ambassador at one point had actually summoned ministry officials to the embassy to get them dressing down over something that had happened. (laughs) I remember another anecdote of, you know, in in a different ministry in in, in Tajikistan, where actually the ambassador had taken umbrage to something, an official of the very institution he was sitting in had said, and asked that person to leave the room, you know, I mean, that's. You know, it's imagine some Chinese official going to the, you know, State Department and <laughs> telling some, you know, State Department official in the meeting, I don't like what you just said to get the hell out of the room. You know, this is scandalous stuff. But so I, I heard I have heard growing numbers these sorts of suggest to me that the Chinese are starting to throw their weight around and that will probably have an effect on some of these issues because you'll find the complaints from the Chinese state will probably get a lot more aggressive and rude, frankly, behind closed doors.
2: So I want to come back to this idea about your central theme and apologies in advance. I'm going to pack a lot into this question. You wrote, talking about the early days of the BRI, what was equally striking about our conversations in Xinjiang and similar discussions we had in Beijing and Shanghai was that no one could articulate to us what the actual plan was. Uh, You report having met with blank stares by academics and think tank types in Beijing and Shanghai when you laid out your ideas of what you you thought that bigger strategy might be. But at the same time, whether or not they were able to articulate it, you do describe um, – well, you ascribe to Beijing kind of a, a strategy for building out all this connective inst- infrastructure and so forth. You know, Predating the BRI, you re- the point of creating regional connectivity at its most basic was to open up Xinjiang's manufacturing and markets to its neighbors and therefore to help the region to prosper and eventually to stabilize. So, so this idea that for China – Central Asia is all about Xinjiang and Xinjiang is all about Central Asia. Is this something that at least subconsciously is understood by the main actors in this? Are you able to, in the end, to ascertain whether China's overall endeavor in Central Asia is it driven by this larger, overarching geopolitical strategy that is, you know, presumably present in the minds of Xi Jinping and and the people, you know, closest to him? and 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 maybe to what extent is it really just an agglomeration of of actions by individual enterprises uh whether SOEs or 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 private sector <laughs> i mean are these guys reading McKinder? are, are they thinking great game and, and is this affecting their i i i can't imagine that that's that's the case so it's it's hard for me to get a sense for the level of of kind of policy coordination here versus Just sort of gold rush land land grab.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really it's it's a difficult question, and you know it's one that is fundamental in some ways to the the book and the thinking that kind of went into it. I mean, I think our the sense our sense was always that as I say, when when we ask people, you know, oh, you know, look all these things are happening, and this is what we think the vision is, and this is what the plan is. You know, the response was like, no, China doesn't have such you know, ambitions. You know, I think they were interpreting it in this sense that we were thinking <laughs> China's going to try to take over this region. And they were saying, oh, no, that's not China's plan at all. We never dream of doing these things. Of course not. You know, we're, we're just doing stuff and this stuff is going in that direction. And there we go. But, you know, when you talk to researchers in, in Xinjiang, you got a stronger sense that actually they could see the importance of Central Asia to them. And the importance of its sort of economic opportunities and that kind of sense of understanding the communities and the cultures it was clearly more tied to domestic stability. I think the kind of grander vision, in some ways, I would say, you know, probably traces back to the kind of march westwards idea, right? Which you know you see going back to Jiang Zemin, right? The the idea of develop the west. You know, we have a China's got this underdeveloped western regions. We need to develop them. How do we do that? Well. It's a long way from those places to the sea, so we need to kind of push inland instead. But that kind of never went anywhere. It's always interesting to look back to 1999 in the creation of the um, bangladesh china india myanmar corridor, which was sort of inaugurated back then, which in some ways is a prelude to the BRI in some ways. And that, you know, was founded right, right. very much out of the same ideas. And you could look at Yunnan and craft a very similar narrative of Yunnan and the, you know, the regions it's next to, the uh, Southeast Asia. So, you know... Was happening then you know and then Xinjiang is kind of another expression of that in a way because it's westward and then in 2012 you have uh, the great dean of uh, beida wang Jisù write that article this famous article where he talked about a march marching westward which you know it's an interesting article because if you read it the narrative he's really digging into is this idea that he thinks basically beijing is obsessing too much about the us and the seas and they're missing this important opportunity here And he says and this important opportunity of course is tied to us importantly domestically and so we need to open up in this direction and that i think was probably quite an important document in terms of shaping the thinking that then goes into the bri but and so in many ways what what our sense was always was that what you see with bri is kind of a name being put on something that had already been happening and kind of crafting a a kind of a Mm -hmm, a seeming mm -hmm. strategy and vision after the kind of horse has bolted and after things have happened and then once that's happened, you say, okay, well, right. that's how this model worked. Let's replicate it. Let's boost it. Let's make it bigger. And in many ways, the kind of model of, you know, building infrastructure, using your companies to do all that infrastructure, offering your loans to do that. The the interesting thing about that model is it's one where Beijing in some way controls all the levers, right? Uh, because it's their policy banks, It's their companies. The only kind of non-actor that they control is a local authority. And there you just kind of negotiate with them and then come to a deal. So it kind of seems to me like an easier strategy for Beijing to articulate and vision. And at the end of it, it's a vision, which is basically saying, let's all make money together, Uh, you know, and that is, you know, quite an easy sale in many ways um, abroad. So how does that all tie back in? And is it, is there an actual plan underneath all of this? When we talk about Central Asia and Xinjiang, I do still think it really is about Xinjiang and about making Xinjiang uh, prosperous and stable. And I think In some ways, that's probably what it always comes back to in Beijing's considerations. I think increasingly, you'll see how does this fit into the US-China clash also play a role uh, because of the kind of increasing centrality of Xinjiang sanctions, uh, the kind of you know, stuff you see the U.S. and other Western powers doing in Central Asia, the clash the U.S. having with the West, having with Russia, um, you know, Afghanistan, where they blame the Americans and now think the Americans are meddling in some way. In Pakistan, where they're constantly worried about the kind of American relationship with Islamabad. So, you know, increasing I think that U.S. narrative and U.S. conflict narrative is coming in as well. But ultimately, all of that, they're worried about that because they're worried that that could come back in again and destabilize Xinjiang. And it's kind of, that's their weakest, their weaker point, let's say. And they're worried that that is an area where someone could kind of turn the screws on them from outside and and cause damage domestically, which would have, you know, warring repercussions. So I do think it still all kind of boils back down to Xinjiang at the end of the day and how it all kind of comes back there. And that's ultimately the goal and the vision. So
2: earlier in our conversation, you, you gave us a sort of early history of the uh, the, the sort of border five, the the Shanghai Five, which was kind of the progenitor of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, and you took us up through you know point where they were they were focused primarily on on demarcating borders, right? Let's 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 give a potted history of how this nascent organization went from that kind of modest task to becoming kind of an anti terrorist coalition on the eve of September eleventh
1: yeah i mean this is a you know the seo is a, a fascinating organization in many ways so it, it was born the shanghai five you know the shanghai five kind of proceeded along until 2001 and in 2001 they decided to change and uzbekistan joined It became the shanghai corporation organization uzbekistan of course doesn't share a border with china which is why it was always a kind of observer and distant no. participant it was also at the time ruled by a man islam karimov who actually liked to keep his cards quite hold, close to his chest and liked his country to be kind of cut off and isolated and just kind of his domain. And he wanted to kind of control everything. So he was always very reticent. And he was even very reticent about joining some of the Russian organizations that came out of the um, the Soviet Union, like the Commonwealth of Independent States or the Collective Security Treaty Organization, or what's now called the Eurasian Economic Union. So he was always very reticent. But anyway, in two thousand and one he decided to join um, the SCO and it became the SCO in June uh, 2001, um, and the idea was to try to build on what they saw, which was a successful grouping where they'd managed to achieve the goals that they wanted to achieve, which is basically define their borders and kind of normalize relations between China and this new group of countries. And so then it goes into uh, 2000, June 2001, it becomes the SCO, and of course September of that year, you know, 9/11 attacks happened, and the world turns on an axis, and suddenly the United States is coming heavy into Afghanistan. Now, what's interesting about this from the SEO perspective is that terrorism was always an issue for the SEO and it was an issue with the Shanghai Five as well, because all of these countries were worried about terrorists and dissidents. And that was one thing they could all agree on. So when you look at the kind of SEO in its first inception, and, you know, the Russians used to derisively refer to it as that counterterrorism grouping, it was because terrorism was the one thing they could all agree on. You know, they all didn't like basically anyone who was against the state. <laughs> and they had pretty broad definitions of that in each and every case. and. That was kind of the thing that they could all get together. And the first thing that the SEO actually does is essentially create something called the Regional Anti-Terrorism Structure, the RAT Center, which is based in Tashkent, right. um, which is essentially a way where they could all... An work.
2: unfortunate acronym.
1: Very unfortunate acronym. As a Russian diplomat jokingly said to me, said, this is what happens when there's no native English speakers in the room. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the, the organization, you know, folks around CT is... Counterterrorism is the kind of thing that they can all agree and all can work together to do in tangible terms. I don't know that they do much in terms of countering actual terrorism, but it's you know it's useful to say, okay, we're going to do military exercise together that's counter-terrorist. We're going to create a database of terrorists who we don't like, and we can you know share that database and do something about it. Maybe if they come around, it was kind of a good subject in general uh, to gather around. But then 9-11 came along, and then of course the funny thing is that immediately all of them essentially. Turn instead to the United States. When actually if you look at the SEO's kind of foundation document, it says, we will work as a group. Uh, we will not let other powers come in and meddle in our region. And then that's exactly what the United States did. And they actually encouraged it, in fact. <sighs> so there's an interesting dissonance. And some very prominent Chinese academics have said, made some interesting points about this. And they say, well, you know, the SEO stumbled at its first trial. <laughs> right. You know, 9-11 was its first trial. And they kind of immediately didn't fall into line and come together as a group, but instead scattered uh, and went to the US. But then what you see happen... In about 2005, um, there was um, well, 2003. People may not remember there was a there was a uprising in Georgia in the, the Caucasus sure. uh, called the Rose Revolution. Um, and then in 2004, you had uh, the first round of Ukrainian uh, protests, the Orange Revolution. And then in 2005, you had two events in in Central Asia. You had some the Tulip. You had a large right. uh, unrest in Andijan in Uzbekistan in the south of the country, uh, where a large protest was essentially, you know, shut down with aggressive force by the security forces, number of people killed, we don't know how many. And in Kyrgyzstan, you had what was at the time called the Tulip Revolution, which wasn't quite the same actually as what we've seen happen in in Georgia and Ukraine. But, you know, because it came after them, it was tagged within the same kind of bracket. And their interpretation of all of these actions uh, across the region and in China and Russia was that, well, this was, you know, Western democracy meddling and causing problems and ultimately leading to instability, and they don't like that. And so then you see the SEO kind of shift a little bit and become a much more closed organization and much more hostile towards the United States and towards the West. But it continues on and continues to meet, but doesn't actually kind of achieve a huge amount. Now, throughout this entire period, uh, right up to today, in some ways, you can see that the Chinese are always really keen on economics within this organization. If you go back and look at Jiang Zemin's speeches before, when it was the Shanghai Five, he was talking about it as a much larger organization than just a kind of counterterrorism grouping. He was talking about this was going to be, you know, the kind of the political, the economic, the security, sure, the cultural, the everything, Mm -hmm. saying that he captures this idea of Shanghai spirit. But then, you know, and the economics one was one that they were really interested in trying to do, but they can never get off the ground, frankly. You know, the Chinese have suggested a Shanghai Cooperation Organization free trade area, a development bank, a joint account, um, all sorts of trade agreements. None of it's really sort of come about. They've now started to do some more limited ones. And even more recently, in the digital and tech domain, you can actually see a lot happening, which is 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 quite interesting. A lot of it's happening through kind of the SEO.
2: Hang on one second here. I, I, I want to come back to yes. finish out our history of the SEO and and to talk about sort of the divergent visions of what it should be, especially in the context of this old kind of this this canard that that uh, yes. Russia does security and China does economics. But we'll come back to that in a second. But I want to. We were on the, the subject of counterterrorism. I think it's important that we we talk a little bit about you know the the true extent of it. You are an expert in in counterterrorism. What do you make of China's claims as to the size and to the the, the scale of of the terror threat uh, that was emanating from Uyghurs, whether from the group called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement or or from any other? Because mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of debate. I mean, there are people who are are you know, completely dismissive of it and then say the ETIM never either didn't ever exist or was just Mm -hmm. sort of in name only and, and was never actually responsible for any uh, attacks or that they were extremely limited. There are other people who, you know, who see this as, as, as much bigger and then think that, that we've irresponsibly sort of, uh, you know, denigrated the, the extent of the threat. Where
1: do you come down on all this? Well, I mean like a good, you know, academic, I hedge. (laughs) No, I, 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 I'd t- To be honest, I think it's somewhere in between is the, is the grim truth. I think on the one hand, you know, there is a narrative question with China where, you know, China considers an awful lot of people terrorists who are really not, um, and they end up grouping an awful lot of things together. So you'll get everything from the World Uyghur Congress to, you know, ETI, which call actually calls itself TIP, the Turkestan Islamic Party, the hezbollah Turkestani, you,
0: you know, know right. and they'll
1: say all of these people are terrorists and all of them need to be dealt with. Well, of course they're not you know what i mean and the dissident community is one side of it and there is there is a group of people out there who are you know terrorists and you know you can go back and look at al qaeda and you can see that al qaeda had members Uyghurs, members of tip on its shura council its kind of governing council so you know there was a very there were some very important uh, tip leaders who were very important influential figures in in pa- in pakistan when al qaeda was there and sort of brokering relationships with the local tribes for the group to survive and operate there and in afghanistan there have been a contingent there for some time and they are still present the leader abdul haq i think in the last video that emerged uh, in eid of last year was celebrating it in afghanistan under the talibans protection there is also a sizable contingent that operate in idlib province in um, in syria uh, which at the moment of course is suffering through a horrible earthquake but there is a few thousand is believed to be the number that are there so this is an organization that exists now has it committed terrorist acts against China? I mean, that's where it becomes very difficult. And that's where, frankly, there isn't much evidence for them doing much uh, for quite a while. If you go back and look at the years, basically between uh, you know 2009 in the wake of the riots in, in Urumqi, uh, all the way to about 2016, where there was a lot of violence around Xinjiang, which the government was reporting as terrorism.
2: You had the Kunming train station attack. You had the, the Tiananmen incident.
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing. So some of them, I think they, we would it would be incorrect to not classify them as terrorist acts. You know, it was basically building bombs and throwing them in public places. Um, you know, but in other cases, you would see it was a local village, you know, somewhere near Yarkant or something, where, you know, the local community got pissed off that the local cops, for whatever reason, and you know, did that, or someone destroyed a mosque, and of course the locals got very angry about that, and that's all classified as kind of terrorist incidents. So. It's, it's difficult because there was clearly something. How much of all of that that we saw happening in Xinjiang was connected outside? I think there was one incident in 2011 where there was evidence to point to that um, because there was an individual who'd been seen at a training camp who then was involved in an attack in Kashgar. And we know that there was people in training camps in, in Afghanistan during the Taliban time before 2001. Um, And then in Pakistan after that, because, you know, Western recruits who went there, you know, actually saw them and said, oh, those are the Chinese guys, the Turkestanis. And they would say there's a lot of them. So, you know, we know that they were there. and We know that some of those guys may have had the aspiration to do that. But, yeah, it's I think it is an issue that exists, but I don't think it's anywhere necessarily the scale. And I think in some ways, China's approach of capturing an awful lot of things under that banner ends up, frankly, uh, diluting uh, the actual group that does exist out there.
2: So back to the SCO, Russia started off pretty dismissive of the SCO, as you've argued, and and actually saw the SCO as a way to actually exert some control over Mm -hmm. China's activities in the region, ironically, to circumscribe China's inroads, and and maybe that didn't quite work out as planned. Uh, I've seen people suggest that with the inclusion of both India and Pakistan – uh, as members now, I think since 2017, the mission is even more narrow and, and the organizing principle of the organization is even less clear. Uh, and you write inside and about conversations that you've had in DC about the SEO that are either mainly schadenfreude you know, or general dismissal of the or- organization. Uh, but your own take is much more subtle. H- how would you describe what the SEO is today if you had to sort of put it in a nutshell?
1: I mean, I think it's an organization that i think we look at through the wrong lens so we look at this organization i say we in the royal western sense and we say well you know this organization has all the trappings of a kind of nato has all the trappings of you know an organization that you know has secretariat meets regularly does these military exercises is supposed to be doing this counterterrorism corporation economic stuff as well you know so therefore what are its results what are its outputs And if you look and you say, well, actually, it's not a huge amount, (laughs) you know, tangibly speaking, the organization hasn't, you know, delivered much. It hasn't got, you know, a NATO style battalions that have been built. It hasn't got that kind of level of coordination. It hasn't got a kind of joint currency that you get in the European Union. Um, It hasn't got sort of harmonization of tax regimes as you get within the Eurasian Economic Union. It hasn't got some of the stuff that ASEAN's got. It's got none of that, actually. The outputs are really quite limited. But then I think that misses the point, which is that actually, What you've had through this organization is essentially the increasing normalization of China's role as a power and as a great power with a relationship with all of these countries. And the fact that more and more countries want to continue to join reflects the fact that actually this organization, this idea, which is basically that, you know, we're going to meet up together on a regular basis engage, talk about stuff to do, maybe think about things we want to work on together, um, not necessarily set ourselves hard deliverables, which you know we then have to sort of do and will cause us all to have arguments about what we should or shouldn't, what we agree with, what we don't agree with, but actually just kind of continue to move in the same direction together. It does create a kind of sense of harmonious thinking and it does you know i think the critical thing is done is really is normalize china's role as a big power in the eurasian landmass um and i don't think that's a small feat in itself you know so no no indeed, indeed. it's uh, I, I think it's yeah i think it's i think that's its kind of its biggest success in many ways
2: but it's one that might ultimately prove threatening to another actor that has traditionally seen central asia as its yeah. you know backyard right uh, I mean, your book, as I said, goes after that easy characterization of the two big continental powers in 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 Central Asia. China does economics; Russia does security. In fact, China's security footprint in Central Asia mm-hmm. is substantial, and it's growing. Uh, can you talk about, first of all, the purpose of 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 China's security presence in the region? I mean, the, the, it's it's everything from you know border stations to actual arms sales. Maybe instantiate that a bit, uh, talk about, you know, what, what are the biggest things that most people are missing, and then maybe talk about what the significance of this is, especially vis-a-vis Russia.
1: Sure. I mean, I think Chinese security presence in the region is uh, a growing uh, story. And it's interesting because it's a growing story that's very focused on, in terms of the presence on the ground, on the People's Armed Police, uh, which I think, again, reflects the Xinjiang narrative, because the People's Armed Police, of course, is primarily a domestic security force. The fact that they're the ones leading a lot of the engagements, you can see the base that the Chinese have built in Tajikistan is a PAP base. A lot of the engagements that you see doing happening around the region are PAP-led. Right. The PLA does have a role as well. There was an organization called the Quadrilateral Cooperation Coordination Mechanism that was created under the Republic government in Afghanistan, uh, which basically brought together the chiefs of army staff of Afghanistan, Tajikistan, China, and Pakistan. It was basically focused on the Wahan Corridor, which is that little panhandle of land that basically. Attaches t- means Afghanistan touches China and separates Tajikistan from um, uh, from Pakistan. It was done during the kind of Russian British <laughs> conflict times to define their two empires. But the, so the PLA does have a role, but it's one where you can see the PAP is really important. And I think that's because, you know, CT and domestic security concerns are really what underpins a lot of what China does and thinks about towards this region. Um, the arms sales is an interesting one because that is you know, something that you've seen increasing over the years. And, you know, there was a couple of sales. There was a big airplane. The I forget it now if it was the Y2 or the Y4, the, the um the Chinese won a contract as a big heavy lift airplane, uh military aircraft that the Chinese won the contract with the Kazakhs, having beaten out the Russians, and the plane that they sold them was essentially one that was one that the Chinese had ripped off from the Russians (laughs) years before. (laughs) Um, You know, so it was the cleanest example of a stealing a contract, you know, using the guy's stuff against them. But then it's also a lot of high-end gear. So if you look at sort of communications equipment, they tend to go Chinese. Um, If you look at um, drones, but actually drones is an interesting one because now, of course, the Turks have started to develop a really interesting drone program, the Batior, which is doing very well actually in the region. But all that kind of more higher-end technology, missile tech and cheaper missile tech is something that you can see the region Increasingly buying from China. So you can see that the Chinese kind of inroads are starting to happen. But I think the other side to this, and this then maybe ties into the Russia side of the story, is that the Chinese interest is always very narrow. You know, it's not the kind of, you know, the Russian vision often of this region is that this region is our soft underbelly. You know, they still have quite a paternalistic view of the region. And the Chinese just are sort of like, well, okay, we're worried about our concerns, and our concerns are militants from Afghanistan coming back and causing us trouble. So we want to make sure we have eyes on that. And that, I think, is the primary purpose of that base, because they don't trust, essentially, the Tajiks completely deliver. And so they think, well, if we've got some people there, then we'll have a bit better sense of what's actually going on in Afghanistan. So it's always very focused on their kind of narrow security concerns. So when they complain and when they ask about Chinese private security companies to be deployed, it's about their companies that they're worried about and their interests. But the kind of wider instability, the wider problems uh, that do exist in this region are not ones that China wants to get involved in. And they're ones that Russia sometimes does get involved in. And of course, in January, uh, just before the invasion of Ukraine, we saw Russia deploy uh, in large size Uh, into Kazakhstan exactly to help sort of stabilize the country there and you know I can't imagine the context where the Chinese would do that in part because the locals wouldn't want it but also because you know frankly they just wouldn't do it they'd be like well why (laughs) you guys (laughs) if you're going to overthrow your government fine then just whoever comes up in power next we'll talk to them instead you know so it's it's just a very 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 different transactional relationship to Russia's um, which still kind of has this sense of kind of paternalistic and still has very strong relations with the region um, in a very important way, which will kind of continue to mean that there will always be an important Russian component to it. And so Moscow
2: doesn't feel threatened at all by
1: China's actions? There. Well, it's that's an interesting question, because I, I, you know, I have spoken to people in Moscow who will sort of tell me in great anxiety and very conspiratorial terms, but you know, people in Russia do love a good conspiracy. They do. That, you know, this is all some sort of giant Chinese plot, but then the more sober-minded ones I see say, well, so what if the Chinese are present there as well? Um, we still have a lot of influence that we can control. Uh, we still get what we want out of this relationship. And the Chinese are never going to kind of go against us, if you will. You know, and I think in some ways, the, the story for me is about the two of them kind of operate, operating in parallel in a way. And just being always careful to not tread on each other's toes, but not really caring that much. Just sort of cracking on with their own business. You know, at root... They basically just want the region to be stable and not cause them trouble and just to kind of make money off it, and that's the end of it. And that's kind of their baseline, you know. And whatever the governance structures look like, they don't care, you know.
2: (laughs) So we're not going to see the great game of the 21st century as one between Russia and China for control of Central Asia. I don't think
1: so. I really don't. I think I think that this is I think the losers, frankly, in this are the Central Asians, because you know, the Central Asians love to talk about the kind of their multi vector foreign policy and their ability to balance these great powers off each other. And the the problem with that at the moment is that the two great powers that have huge influence in their region, Russia and China, have an agreement with each other, spoken or unspoken, depends how you interpret what they say to each other, um, to basically, you know, work together in geopolitical alignment against the West. And they won't let anything impede that. You know, and so within that context, it becomes very difficult if you're a Central Asian country to play the two off each other, <laughs> because you know that Beyond a certain point, they will never go because they don't want to undermine the overall relationship.
2: Well, one pivotal country in the old great game was, of course, Afghanistan. And Afghanistan, you write, is a country, Mm -hmm. quote, in which China is doomed to play a significant role, but it is a role that it is studiously avoiding taking. And so it's, it's really kind of the archetypal case of the inadvertent empire theme in your book. Uh, you have a chapter of the book called Inheriting Afghanistan with a question mark. Uh, but if I'm not mistaken, your manuscript had already been turned in by the time of the American withdrawal of August of 2021. Mm. Uh, the question that forms the chapter's title no, nevertheless is still very much apt, right? Uh, at the time of the withdrawal mm. – there were all sorts of pundits, you know, as you probably saw, probably drove you crazy talking about how China was going to rush in to fill the vacuum. Is that what happened?
1: No, in <laughs> short, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, I think well, what's fascinating to me is the degree to which we've basically seen the same kind of Chinese policy roll on. In fact, I could even argue the case that China was happier, frankly, the Republican power up to a point because there was a moment in the sort of later Trump years where you could see a tension coming into that relationship as well. But when they had the republic government in charge, you had the Americans there who were kind of dealing with the security problems and keeping the security basically domestic and focused on them, frankly, and the republic government. You had an environment where you had a kind of technocratic government that was kind of trying to issue contracts to do deals and projects to get mining going. You had lots of international financial institutions that were coming there to try to build infrastructure and, of course, needed contractors to do it. And so you saw a lot of Chinese companies win those contracts because they were willing to work in these difficult environments and they could, and they had credibility to do it. Uh, you know, and so they were doing a lot of that building. The two biggest contracts that were signed under the Republic were with Chinese companies. You know, in Messinak, there was a copper mine. And then up in the north, Amu there's a oil field that CNPC won. You know, so the Chinese kind of had a very workable relationship. And even on the security side, you know, the Republic government did not like Uyghur militants. And was quite happy to go after anyone the Chinese said was a Uyghur militant because those people tended to be working with the Taliban who they were fighting. So they're right. like, yeah, we're, we don't like him either. So, you know, I think they were quite content in some ways with that relationship. Now, when it all gets, you know, blown up and the Republic falls and the uh, the um, Taliban take over, you know, it did complicate that a lot because first, well, now they've got to reconstruct the relationship, but they've been laying the foundations of a relationship with the Taliban for some time. But, you know, what they quickly have learned is that actually the Taliban are not an easy group of people to work with, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and they are not, you know, men who are frankly, you know, going to suddenly turn on their Uyghur allies because, you know, Beijing demands them to do it. These guys have been fighting a war for the past 20 years and they've just won, you know, against the world's mightiest empire. This is their kind of analysis of the situation. So why on earth should they turn over their allies to, you know, these perfidious neighbors who've done nothing to help them. So there's, there's a kind of tension baked in there, but at the same time, the Taliban recognize, and the Chinese recognize as well, that they have this card to play, that there is a sudden opportunity in Afghanistan as well. And, you know, they, the Taliban want the Chinese to come and invest. They want them to come and do more because who else is going to do it, frankly? The other neighboring countries are uninterested or are very scared or just don't have the resources. China is this kind of golden goose at the end of the rainbow that they think will come and, you know, buy <laughs> everything and give them loads of money and make everything wonderful and prosperous. But from a Chinese perspective... The Chinese are hesitant because the government on the other side, you know, they don't know how to handle projects. They haven't dealt with these things before. So you've got to work through all those practicalities. The government is still very heavily sanctioned. So there's a risk in terms of engaging with them. You might lose your investments. I mean, actually, if you look, a lot of the economic activity we've seen since the fall has actually been driven mostly by uh, Chinese entrepreneurs, private Chinese enterprise, a lot of businessmen or guys hmm. who notice that actually – you know, security in Afghanistan suddenly got much, much better. You know, Afghanistan used to be a war-torn country. It's not anymore. I mean, there are still, there is still violence, terrorism violence. There is, is a dangerous place, but it's nowhere near as dangerous as it was before. So violence has suddenly gotten much better and they are willing to have a go and they recognize that there are large mineral deposits. There are precious jewels. There is potential agriculture. There is, you know, rare earths. There are opportunities there. And so why not try to have a go? And that's, I think, that's actually what's driven a lot of the economic engagement the chinese state hasn't actually been that involved frankly uh, they've been very hesitant and very reticent because of the kind of you know potential you know traps that they can see themselves walking into and right so it's 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 this narrative of china filling a vacuum i just have not seen it and there was a really interesting moment actually at the end of last year or late last year where you saw the taliban were really starting to get frustrated in the way that i remember when i used to talk to people in the republic government would get very frustrated about the chinese where on the surface, they were always super positive and all about engagement and, yeah, we want the chance to come. and watch. But When you talk to them behind closed doors, they were like, oh, God, they just don't, it's just not happening. I don't know why we can't get them to move. You know, they signed the contract. They're not delivering it. And now they're complaining about this and they're trying to do that. And you saw Mullah Barada, the kind of number two uh, in the Taliban, actually go to the Messinaj project. And the company that had won the project previously has been talking to the Taliban about restarting it now. Not that, by the way, they ever started it. They signed the contract in 2007. They did nothing. They turned around and said, you know, Monobaroto actually went to the site and said, yeah, we really want you to start now, please, you know. (laughs) And then there's this narrative from Beijing that, you know, Afghanistan was a key part of the Belt and Road. And the Minister for Trade and Commerce or the Minister-designate for Trade and Commerce did a sort of webinar in which, again, he pleaded for the Chinese to please incorporate Afghanistan into the Belt and Road because they really want... So there's a real pull, but... It's not being reciprocated. And so I think the Chinese are actually uh, are being quite hesitant in terms hmm. of moving forward, even though, you know, logic dictates they will have to play a role of some sort because they share a border with this country. Um, the problems of this country, if they get much worse, will impact Central Asia, they're already impacting Pakistan quite negatively, and it's probably going to happen north as well. These are places where China is very heavily invested. And, you know, that's kind of worst case scenario for China is that the whole neighborhood goes up in flames.
2: Your book laid out what during the Republic were four main pillars of Chinese concern over Afghanistan, the direct threat, you know, which Beijing Mm -hmm. presumes to be from the Uyghur groups, exporting violence and jihadism, and that's still going on. The threat of Afghanistan uh, destabilizing the region, and obviously that's still a problem. The flow of narcotics, that's still, mm-hmm. you know, ongoing. Uh, the only, only one that's really disappeared is that it, they used to, you know, complain about an American military presence right on their border. Yeah, <laughs> The others are.
1: But, you know, even that one, it's funny. You, you look at some of the narratives that come out, the levels of paranoia. Um, You can see around the American engagement with the Taliban, the fact that you've had the CIA chief go to Kabul, the deputy CIA chief meet with the Taliban's intelligence chief in in Doha, uh, Tom West meeting with uh, Mullah Yaqub and other senior officials. Uh, You know, I even remember reading, uh, actually hearing some, you know, some folk in China telling me that, you know, the fact that Zawahiri was killed in Kabul. Was evidence, Zawahiri being the Al Qaeda leader, right. uh, was killed in Kabul, was evidence of the fact that the Americans were working with the Taliban. Because they said, well, someone must have fingered him and it must be the Taliban. So the Taliban were working the Americans. <laughs> so actually, that, that paranoia about bases, you know, it's, it's still kind of rumbling in the background.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, finally, uh, I want to ask <laughs> you where we are right now with the Belt and Road. You have doubtless heard uh, the pundits who've pronounced it dead based on the mm-hmm. relatively infrequent mentions of it in major speeches and in documents. Others, have talked about it morphing into something else or suggesting that it's still going forward, but just without quite as much fanfare. Where are you on this?
1: So, I mean, I, I've always thought that the interpretation that's often given to the Belt and Road of it being a project is incorrect. It's a vision, right? This is Xi Jinping's big foreign policy idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been enshrined in the in the Communist Party constitution. So, it's there. It's his big contribution. It's a big idea. And you know, Within that context, I think they've left it always very purposely vague mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, that means the goalposts are malleable. So it can never, you know, it can always kind of move forwards. And, and I think it will kind of continue to. I think some of the interesting discussions recently you've seen around the global security initiative and the global development initiative, I would argue are developments off the kind of Belt and Road, but the kind of fundamental concept of the Belt and Road vision, I think, sort of preponderates. I think the hiccups we're seeing now, um, I would attribute to, you know, well, frankly, problems, because they've spent an awful lot of money in countries where there's, you know, in a lot of cases, very little prospect of them getting it back. So they're having to sort of retrench an awful lot. And also because at home, you know, there's a recognition that we can't just keep spraying this money everywhere. And so that's, I think, where this sort of pullback narrative comes from. But for me, it's not really about the kind of dollars and cents. It's really about a vision here. And the vision is China wants to Basically create prosperity around the world, create connectivity, make the world a kind of better place. And that underlying concept and idea is, I would argue, the core of the BRI. And within that interpretation, you know, I don't think that's an idea that ever really necessarily goes away. It just sort of stays The specific goalposts will just shift to suit the needs of whatever the situation is at that moment in time. I think it's going to be interesting to see the upcoming Belt and Road Forum, which will, I think, happen, I think it's this year we're doing, um, which should be really interesting to observe because it's going to be, you know, the 10th year anniversary. And I think we'll really get a big celebration of Xi Jinping's wonderful uh, contribution to, you know, the party's thinking.
2: That's very well put. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. Raphael, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Once again, the book is called Sinistan, China's Inadvertent Empire, and its co-authors are Raphael Pantucci and Alexandros Peterson. Definitely give it a read. As you probably heard, it's chock full of really, really great thinking and observation about China's presence in Central Asia. Thank you. All right. um, Let's move on to recommendations. First, a very quick reminder that if you like the work that we do with the Cynica podcast and with the other shows in the Cynica network, the very best thing that you could do to support our work is by subscribing to access membership at the China Project. You go to the China Project website, you find the subscribe button. It's just a buck. I mean, $1 right now uh, for your first month and – you know, if you like it, keep keep subscribing. I, it's it's really good. Uh, I think that you'll find it to be enormously valuable. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Rafaela, what do you have for us?
1: So, um, in terms of recommendations, I think you know it's <laughs> there's a, a if you're looking for kind of big books that are kind of thinking about uh, this region and these kind of visions. I do think that you know Peter Frankopan's big The Silk Roads book is well worth mm, mm. Um, a read. Frankly, it captures a kind of a big arc. Of uh, this narrative, and in some ways, paints a picture that we, I think, flesh out specifically for Central Asia in a much wider kind of context about a changing rules. And I think the the synthetic road, <laughs> the synthetic road, exactly right. Um, I think, and I think it's a really it's a really excellent book in terms of capturing that in a very readable and very substantial way. The other thing I'd always highly recommend people read is, frankly, uh, Mackinder, Halford Mackinder, the great geographer who you know conceived this idea of the Eurasian heartland. Um, as being the pivot of his, the geopolitical pivot of the world, um, I think is a really um, important text to kind of read and gives you a really interesting flavor and a good look at the world, which you can then, I, I think, is increasingly overlooked. Um, and I think increasingly, in particular, in policy circles in Washington and in Europe, actually, where people are so focused on kind of the maritime questions that emanate from China that we miss this entire landmass and all the important things that are happening there.
2: All right. So, Peter Frankopan's book, The Salt Road and alfred mckinder yes i want to recommend the book volt rush by henry sanderson who's going to be on the show in a week or two uh it's really an amazing book it's reported from all over the world uh, looking at the the complexity and the the challenges of the electric vehicle ev supply chain specifically you know for the metals that make the batteries mm-hmm. work and you know we're talking about not just lithium but Cobalt, really importantly. There's a a long, long, long section on cobalt and on nickel, of course. Uh, It's really eye-opening. Don't worry. The lesson is certainly not, well, it's just as bad to drive an EV and not an internal combustion engine vehicle. So, you know, don't buy one. No, definitely not. Uh, Jeremy and I will be speaking to him soon, and I think you would do well to pick up the book ahead of that interview. I'll give it a read, you know, and then I think you'll get more out of listening to us talk to him about it. Um, anyway, it's
1: great to hear you say that because I've actually just bought it. Oh, <laughs> so, oh, good! You're wonderful. Yeah, very step ahead. perfect wonderful. no it's <laughs> I'm it's, it's really good. It even more now.
2: <laughs> and, I mean, it, it actually does remind me a little bit of yours because you know it, it does have just a ton of of you know of conversations with individuals and, and and there's a lot of just sort of observation in it as well, which makes it extremely readable and uh, yeah. a lot of fun.
1: Well, Henry's other book, uh, China's uh, the about X and China X and Max was fantastic. Yeah, they so wrote with, I, with I Mike Forsythe, right? That's right,
2: yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great book too. So, Raphael, thank you once again. That was just terrific. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed having you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at com just to tell us how we're doing or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile follow us on twitter or on facebook at at the china proj and be sure to check out all the shows in the cinema network thanks for listening and we'll see you next week take care